Oh my God, I love your love. <laughs> I'm Autumn Brown, a queer science fiction writer, theologian, a mother of dragons, and a healing justice facilitator for social movements living on Dakota and Anishinaabe land currently known as Minneapolis. And I'm Adrienne Marie Brown, a writer, student of miracles, love, emergent strategist, pleasure activist, radical imaginarian, and... I'm living on Anishinaabe territory, currently known as Detroit. And this is How to Survive the End of the World. Our podcast about learning from apocalypse with grace, rigor, and curiosity. And we are continuing our sibling mini-series, which is maybe the best thing that ever happened to us. Um, getting to talk to all these other pairs of siblings about life and politics and being in movement together. Um, and today we have two people who I have admired, looked up to, learned from, um, stand. And they are, there's a, a few siblings like this where I knew them separately for a long time before realizing they were siblings. And then oh. when I realized they were siblings, I was so thrilled. So we have today um, Carissa and Cole. And Carissa, I know through all kinds of organizing back in the Bay Area. Um, and Carissa and I have gotten to work together most closely in the Movement for Black Lives work and the Rising Majority work. And I'm expecting that you'll talk about both of those things. Um, Carissa ran the Center for Third World Organizing for a long, long, long time. And now you're running Rising Majority? Is that still the the true case? I'm part of the team. You're part of the team. Part of the team. Okay. This is the this is because we're learning, okay? We don't run things anymore. We, we're part of teams now, okay? And then Cole. Um now Cole, I, I'm really curious to actually hear where you have landed right now because the Cole, like when I knew you. It was everything was getting the Brown Boy Project off the ground and organizing around really radically transforming how we understand gender, how we understand masculinity, all these things. But then I feel like you went and started like buying up mad land and like doing this whole other project. Is that <laughs> the case? Yes. Okay. All the things. All the things. Exactly. Part of another team. Yes. Part of a whole other team. So we're, we're going to get to hear from these two siblings about your journeys, how you came to be politicized and where you are in the work, where it's related, where it's not. Uh, but before we get into the all of that, we just want to know how folks are showing up on this call today. We like to just take a moment, check in on the right now today conditions of us all. Yeah. So Carissa, how are you doing today? Uh, thanks. It's a pleasure to be on with you both. Um, I'm feeling good. It is, you know, 70 degrees, uh, here where I live now. Um, and, uh, yeah, I'm uh, anxiously anticipating the full coming of summer. Um, but I'm starting to feel really grounded and rooted, uh, here where I live now in Georgia. Oh, right. Cause you moved to Georgia. Where it's right. actually warm. <laughs> That's right, Autumn. Is it, is it snowing where y'all live? 
It's not snowing, but it's not hot. You know? It's like that's that's like where the White Walkers live. It's beyond the wall up there. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and it feels like there are literally White Walkers here sometimes. Oh, I mean, there literally are. Um, <laughs> Autumn, do you want to tell us how you're doing up there in White Walker land? <laughs> um, you know, today I'm good. Um, I uh, the last few weeks of my life have been like um, I think I'm I'm in a turning point in my life. I'm realizing, and this week has been kind of a um, uh, just like a, oh, I need to slow down and reorient because something like I'm having like a, like my worldview is changing right now. Like I'm having like disruption of worldview. Something is, Ooh. something's moving at like a much bigger level. Um, so I was feeling really uncomfortable for several weeks and now I'm starting to be like, oh, uh-huh. <laughs> I think, I think I maybe know what's going on. Um, so that's, so that's good. It yeah. just means that now I have to I'm turn so and curious. face what's happening. Like, mm, um, you know, mm. I know girl, there's like a whole other conversation that we need to have, but, <laughs> I know, I'm like, um, hmm. you're like, hmm. um, but so it's not 70 degrees here, but it is getting warmer. And, you know, when you live through the Siberian winter situation that we lived through in Minnesota, when spring happens, you really feel like you survived something. So I'm definitely having that like, wow, frogs and toads and flowers. You know, it's like that is also happening and it's <laughs> and it's good. I'm going for walks That's every great. day and feeling grateful that the planet has seasons. <laughs> and and this weekend I don't have my kids. Um uh, so I'm just planning to like rest a whole lot. Okay. Restful mama. Um so I'm good. Right now I'm good. Right now I'm good. Yeah. Cole, how are you? Uh, I'm really wonderful. Again, thank you both so much for having us in this conversation. I don't think Carissa and I have ever really explored this, not as grown oh, folk. Um, along the way, we've had various different conversations, but we're really looking forward to it. I'm great. Uh, I am juice fasting, and I feel like one of the lessons that came to me from this like last year and a half has just been um, that we have the ability to rewrite our relationship to our body in any way that we want and that it's never too late to do that. And so it's been just such a blessing to have the room and the space to do that. And I'm also a month a month in from being back from South Africa. So I've been there for the last year and a half because of the pandemic. Wow. And it was amazing. And I feel like I'm still radiating the energy um, of SA and just really grateful. But um, but yeah, excited to be back and um, really looking forward to diving into how this work is shaping us wow. all in this moment. And where are you? Where, where'd you go back to? Like, where's home for you now? Yes. Well, I keep joking that home is now South Africa. But <laughs> <laughs> I refer to that as home, but I'm in Baltimore, um, which is where we do a, a great deal of our work uh -huh. um, and a, a city that reminds me very much of Oakland. Cool. Uh -huh. Very cool. Adrian, how are you? Uh, wow. Well, I'm really moved by what Cole just said about the body, being able to rewrite the script, basically, of the body. I feel like that's where I'm at right now. And I keep having this... Uh, I keep having this like, va <laughs> I'm like, did y'all hear that? Anyway, 
I keep having this like vacillating energy of like, it's okay. I need to turn and face my body and actually really spend some time on my health right now. And the guilt um, that I think is just like leftover, like movement guilt, where it's like, you can't focus on yourself. That's selfish. Like you need to be definitely doing something for everybody. (laughs) Um, And, you know, just kind of sitting with like, I've done a lot for everybody, which is why my body is in this state. And so now Mm -hmm. I need to attend to my body so that I can continue to do a lot for everybody. You know, like it's mm-hmm. it's not like one or the other. Or it's, not. You know, <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, but I do have this sense. I do have this sense, like everyone's life is structured differently, but I do have the sense that like what I'm up to is of service to the world. Like me doing what I'm supposed to do in a healthy way is of service to the world. I think that for everyone. I'm like, if you totally. are in your health and your well-being, that's when you have the capacity to like be compassionate and channel something larger than yourself and like be accountable and all those things. And it's very hard to do those if you can't, you can't, um, you can't handle feeling, right? Because it's like, you know, so I'm just like, oh, there's so much pain accumulating in my body that I'm really having a hard time like handling feeling and feeling is what I need to be able to do. (laughs) So I'm just like, okay, we have to address this. but it's also making for an identity shift because I have such an identity of myself as like kind of a debaucherous, fun-loving like person who's not attending to these things. And the identity that needs to move into this next period of my life is an identity that's very mindful, actually, um, about all kinds of decisions I'm making and how they interact with each other. And uh, so, you know, what turning to the self as sacred object, right? I'm like, I talk about this, but... I go through periods of practicing and not practicing. So it's a period of practice. From so debauchery to modesty, the Adrian Marie <laughs> Brown story. <laughs> that literally is my story. I'm like, are you Polly? No, I'm monogamous. I'm married. Like nothing, everything is very different, you know? And it's great. And I'm happy. <laughs> That's the trip, right? You're, if, as long as you're always changing, I think you're in good, good shape, right? Absolutely. So I'm glad to hear where we all are and that we're here together. And one of the things that we have found very useful, Autumn and I have found very useful, is to give ourselves at the top of each conversation a place to just name what we are feeling some rage around, what we're feeling some anger around, like to really have a chance to release. We call it the flume of rage. Petty, angry. Flume of rage. 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 So... I can start. I have a pretty clear one right now. And then y'all can all just, you know, dance with it, right? And and one thing, Chris and Cole, we want you to know is this can be massive, big rage. It can be small, irritable, you know, the kind of like there's a pee in the mattress or something. Like it can be anything in that in the range, right? Um, as long as it it ticks, ticks your rage clock or whatever. All right. So <laughs> the one that's getting on my <laughs> last nerve is. I am I have a very informed public stance on Palestine. I am an anti-Zionist and I'm pro-Palestine. And so when, as often happens, Israel attacks Palestine, I take a stance on it and I point people towards the boycott, divest, and sanction movement generally, because that is what I was politicized as like this is what allies do um, in order to be in solidarity with Palestine. And I have participated in the cultural boycott. I've done all these other things. So when I post that almost every single time, there are people who come and they're like, oh, 
you actually don't have your facts correct about this, this, that, and the other thing, right? And it makes me so angry because I'm like, if for me to be at this stage where I'm like, I'm telling you a very specific place where you can go and get informed means that I did my research to get informed. But what you're actually feeling is you disagree with my stance, that you are a Zionist. And so you don't want me to take this stance publicly. You don't agree with it. But if you had courage to just say, I'm a Zionist and here's what I want to say, then we would have a different conversation, right? It might still mm-hmm. end up in a blocking, uh, but it would be a different conversation. <laughs> I right? might this still block like, your ass, I might still, but at least because it'd be I'm a conversation like, first. At least it'd be a conversation, you know, potentially because the same way when someone comes on my page and they're overtly racist, I'm like, you're racist. This, I don't know why you're over here because this is not that page for you. This is a space where there will not be room for anti-blackness. There won't be room for that kind of ignorance here because it's my social media space and I get to determine what I deal with here and I get to protect myself as need be. And to me, Zionism and racism are are like a DNA strand all rooted up together, right? And I, when people come, you know, I'm just like, all the stuff that comes out, and this is from people who otherwise often will have a fairly progressive or radical perspective on life, but this is the place where it's like the blinders come on and they cannot see um, the they cannot see the, their stance on this as a regressive stance or a dominant stance or colonial stance, and mm-hmm. and I I just feel you know there's like oh this is anti-Semitic it's like no, no. because. There are Jewish people who are pro-Palestine. There are Jewish people who I stand with in my anti-Zionism. Zionism is not synonymous with, with Judaism. Synonymous with Judaism or with being Jewish culturally or any of that in the same way that um, being an active anti-Black racist person is not synonymous with what it means to have lineage from Europe, right? Like there are many ways to be. You, you get to choose what your behavior is and how you're going to roll. So... It's just a public announcement time for me. Every time that happens, and I'm just like, this is not the place for that. And mm-hmm. and particularly don't come to me as a black woman who has been in movement and studying these things for a long time and tell me I don't have the information. There are areas where I don't have the information. And so I'm like looking sure. for what I can uplift. But this is not <laughs> one of them. This has been a stance. Like I've, I've had this stance for over a decade. I've been really clear in it. Um, and I will continue to be really clear on it. I a free Palestine. So that's my rage. Mm, I love that, Adrian. Thank you. I love it when you do a PSA. Um, and I'll just piggyback on that if that's okay with you, Cole and Carissa. Like, I think because I think I was coming as long as I get to be the pig in that scenario. I'm like, jump on. Piggyback. (laughs) Um, (laughs) like, I, yeah, I, I've been feeling a lot of, I'm just so pissed off right now. I mean, I'm pissed off generally about the fact that, um, people are dying and, um, but then it's just, it's always so sickening to watch the way the conversation plays out in the U S context and like the two sidesism. that's the part that bothers me, you know, when it's like, there's just no equivalency between the military power, the economic power, the um, the ways that people stand with the state of Israel versus the ways that people do not stand with the Palestinians. It's just like there's no there's no equivalency whatsoever. And then you see it play out again and again in the U.S. media, this like creating mm-hmm. these equivalencies between the two sides. And it's 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 
um, you know, it's part of the this whole bigger framework that we sit inside of in which like that way of framing conversations allows us to never actually talk about solutions ever. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah, and that the whole thing around Zionism, I'm like, you know, who is aligned with Zionists is like evangelicals. That's, you know what I'm saying? It's like, it's, it has a lot more to do with evangelicalism than it has to do with Judaism, frankly. Yeah. And, and then like all of the research bears that out. And it's so frustrating to watch folks have these same really narrow conversations over and over mm -hmm. that, that, you know, that basically um, they, they shield the view of, you know, one of the things that we talk about all the time in movement work is like the, the way that narr the narratives that are put forward obscure <laughs> the other narratives that we actually need to be, you know, absorbing yeah. and, and rearticulating so that we can be talking about so that other things become politically possible. Yeah. You know, so yeah, just watching that obfuscation happen is very frustrating. It's very frustrating. And I feel like I keep like, it, it's hard, it's hard to take in the news right now because of that. But I think we yeah. should drop some, I think it'll, I think it would help me if we like drop some resources in the show notes for this episode. I'd love to. <laughs> No, you know what I'm I saying is like, I think I think there is that feeling of like, okay, let's just focus on resources. That that might be a productive way to yeah to do it. But, I'd love to yeah. post resources be also because I think that people in movement get really stuck on this one, where we get mm -hmm. threatened that our funding is going to get cut and other things will get cut if we if we hold this position of solidarity, which is always when you know it's most important to hold the position of solidarity. So I'm like, yeah, let's drop some resources in there um, yeah. and. All right, Carissa, Cole, what y'all pissed about? <laughs> Boom. I'm I'm re I'm ready to jump in. Also, just transparently, my dog is trying to join the podcast. Okay. 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 Dogs, welcome. Her, we love her dogs ass, here. Her ass is is trying to bark, so I'm gonna try and talk quickly so before I catch her on another bark. So yeah, just just to add uh, add a little bit of pile on. Also, fuck Yang. Okay, Yang needs to sit his mm. ass down. Um, and so just, yes. yeah, see, see, seeing all these motherfuckers who are like piling onto the Zionist bullshit is frustrating, but I actually, so because y'all laid mm -hmm. out a lot around, um, you know, uh, uh, solidarity with our comrades in Palestine, I did want to bring something else very random. I am highly frustrated. Uh, th there is an Instagram page called embracing black culture. Do y'all follow this Instagram page? Embracing Black Culture. Embracing Black Culture. It is it is an excellent Instagram. And I am so frustrated that they do not direct the Grammys and the Oscars. Okay. Because we, we should just give this Facebook page the autonomy to give awards. Because how they curate content, baby, is is just the epitome of black excellence. Um, okay. I found out that you commute a microwave. I, I I didn't know that you commute a microwave. I found that out today on what? Embracing Black Culture. So it's just, you know. What? It's it's a lot of deliciousness on this page. So fo follow Embracing Black Culture. Okay. They should be doing a lot of our directing of all of, all, all of the curation of excellence. That's what I got. I love this. I love this. <laughs> 
I love that because it's both rageful and top culture all together, you know? Mm-hmm. But I'm like, yeah, they should. there should be better curation of almost every Black public space. And Cole, what you got? Yes. Yeah, Chris stays stays uh, on the, the pop culture tip. Um, I, you know, I think it's interesting because I think that the space of rage is one that I'm working to move out of here in my middle age. It's actually been really fascinating to think about what does it look like to transform that energy? So part of, I think, what I find frustrating or, or rageful is just this idea that um, it's still very, very hard for folks in community to really own um, the possibility of creating and building and and imagining things into the world. And I think that that's actually part of why the trap works so effectively in keeping us distracted, keeping us focused on white people's bullshit, yes. keeping us focused on the places where we don't have power. Um, and so really, what does it look like to to actually completely operate from a space of like, what can I abundantly do in this moment? Where can I align, whether it's Palestine, whether it's embracing black culture, right? The idea of what needs to be lifted up in this moment Mm -hmm. and how am I in the service of that? And how am I an agent of that? And I think that that to me has just the fact that very effectively black people, we have a very hard time doing that is just what gives me rage because I recognize that if we could literally just flip that one switch, it would open up everything that we need in the space to be able to create and manifest the world we want. But it just, it is very hard for us to move out of that space. And so I appreciate the need for rage because it's a release, especially in the system that we live in. But I'm really excited about Mm. the possibilities that lie beyond that in a place where we've been able to shed that space and really it is this idea of what are we creating lifting up building mm. investing in and celebrating yes okay that's so exciting just come in here and organize you know, us and organize us <laughs> well and you know i mean it's so interesting right because for the first like three seasons we were like solutions 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 you know and then we were just like this pandemic has us pissed the fuck off and we have to figure out how to deal with it and move back to a place where we're like all right we are empowered agents of change um so we have the right guest on today so the first question we ask our siblings is where are y'all from oh that's a good question. I feel like it's always a loaded question. We are from the town, which is what we call Oakland. I feel like it has shaped us, fused us, even though it's <laughs> not where we were born, that, that we are we are very much town biz all day. And, um, and in so many ways, it's so layered. I mean, growing up, we didn't know that Oakland was the most racially diverse and integrated city in the country. So there are places that are more racially diverse, but none that were as integrated as Oakland was in the the late 80s and the 90s, which is when we grew up there. And so it just ended up being this incredible gift um, that you almost take for granted until you live in a different place in a space. And Oakland, of course, has just such an incredibly rich history uh, around blackness. But, um, you know, we live in different places now and we are very much shaped from places. I don't know, Chris, if you would say what other places are you from? Yeah, that's it, baby. East Oakland, Funk Town. <laughs> that's, that's that's the place that raised that. us. Um, yeah, <laughs> that's the place that raised us. Where were you born? Uh, we were born in different places. We were both born on the East Coast. I was born uh, in a very small uh, white town called Concord, New Hampshire. Uh, our father's from Washington D.C. Our mother's from New Hampshire. <laughs> so I was born in New Hampshire. Cole was born in D.C. Wow. 
Wow. Awesome. What different birth locations. Literally. It's such a telling of the story of our family, too. I was the last of the generations born in D.C., and now none of our oh, family is wow. in D.C. anymore because folks have been moved out. Wow. Okay. So actually, that's a good segue into the other question that we, one of the other, like, sort of this, these questions are about sort of uh, setting the context for our audience, for understanding a little bit more about y'all. Mm. Um, so the other question we've been asking our siblings is, you know, if you could tell us a little bit about your family structure, you know, like, are there other siblings in the mix? You know, where are you in the birth order? Yeah, those kinds of things. Tell us a little bit about how your family <laughs> looks. Yes, that we're deep. Um, so there's uh, four of us that are uh, siblings. One of us uh, has the same father, but a different mother. Three of us have the same mother and father. And then we have two stepsisters from my mother's remarriage to my stepfather. Um, I am the best birth position, AKA the baby. <laughs> Woo, we've reached we've reached the fantastical fantasy portion of today's okay. segment. Like <laughs> we got here early. We got here early. Great. So Carissa, you're the baby. Apparently, I am. Carissa, I'm also yes. the baby, and I agree with you. <laughs> There's something and Cole, delicious are you the about being a baby. <laughs> I am. <laughs> I'm the oldest as well. I'm the oldest as well. Okay, beautiful. All right, we have these talks. Well, let's have some talks. Okay. All right, beautiful. Wow. That's a big family. That's a huge family. Um, and y'all are also... Uh, I don't want to put words onto your identities, but y'all are also from a, a black parent and a white parent. Yes. So our mama is white and our daddy um, was black. Our father passed away, um, unfortunately. Um, yeah, still, still, still pretty hard. It's been two years. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah. He, he 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 passed away but um so yeah his his whole family was uh from dc um and her her whole family is from new england and they met um in new york when they went to the moonies so they joined a cult i personally have a deep fascination with cults so yeah they met in a cult mm -hmm. um and uh they left the cult because my father kept getting passed over for leadership positions and my mother believes that she is the only person in Mooney, right, because of racism. Um, yes. And my mother believes she is the only person in the history of the Moonies. Uh, you know, the Moonies, they followed Young Sung Moon. He was like the second coming. Um, she's the only person who resigned. She submitted a resignation letter to the cult that said, I'm resigning because y'all are racist, essentially. Um, so, yeah, so, so that's that's how they met. Um, and then, uh, you know, they lived in DC, they lived in New England, um, they lived in Boston yeah. and, uh, they were living in some little town and, um, the newspaper came out and said, Hey y'all, there is only 1% of black folks in, in our city or, or, or state at the time. And they were like, as long as we keep the population of black people below 1%, that will, you know, will be fine. And so, you know, my little white mother was like, let me write the editor a letter. So she wrote the editor a letter and was like, 
this is racist. And the editor wrote her back directly and was like, no, baby, you just don't understand because you're, you know, you'd understand if you knew black people. And so she was like, my family is black. And then uh, she just started getting a whole bunch of letters from like the KKK. That's like when white people and black people make babies, they make monkeys. So she wanted to go to graduate school. Wow. Um, and so she started to look at the most diverse city in the country. And she found that Oakland was the most diverse city in the country. And she wanted to attend UC Berkeley. So that is how we moved to Oakland when I was five. Um, she never went to UC Berkeley, though. But that's another story. <laughs> okay. I was like, wow. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. <laughs> okay. So this is starting to unveil like so much. <laughs> I was like, woo, we're in the fun zone now. Um, but I would love to hear how would you describe the political orientation or political orientations of your family? I love that. I mean, I think we come from a very, our our immediate family is very socialist and the highly progressive and very, very active in the Bay Area social justice movement. At one point, we joked that I was the most conservative person in our family. And that's mostly because I was talking about capital and land before. Now it's like a trend and everybody and their mother is talking about, I would just like to have a moment of silence. Oh yeah. Trend setter. Uh, (laughs) Yo, Carissa, Carissa was talking about farming and land before anybody else was talking about it. And I was talking about buying up neighborhoods before anybody else was talking about it. So, but, but that, that just gives you a sense of like the political leaning. It's so hard to be visionary. visionary. Yes. (laughs) No, no. But yeah, like they're, they're super, super legit growing weed in the backyard. The family is like all all of the things in that really amazing way. And I think it's been very much influenced by the, our journey to the West Coast and our journey to Oakland and just what an incredible incubating space that has been for um, the politics. Of yeah, and I justice. think gr- growing up, you know, my our father was a chef um, and um, my mother always did like nonprofit, like she worked for Habitat for Humanity for a while. So it wasn't necessarily articulated as like, I didn't understand it as social justice. Um, but it was like service-based work. And I think as our politics developed, her politics continued to develop. Uh, I remember the first protest I went to, our father took us to a protest around Rodney King's beating in, in 1992. Um, and so that was, yeah, that was the first protest that I went to. It was in wow. Berkeley uh, on Telegraph and people were um, tearing up the gap uh, for folks who remember the gap on Telegraph. Um yeah. So, uh, you know, I had no idea that protest yeah. would become such an important part of my life and that uh, he would help introduce me to that space. And and our stepfather um, has been a long term socialist, as as Cole mentioned, um, was also on the city council for, you know, 11 or 12 years. Uh, so was always in the, the mix. But he was like the outlier, you know, where he couldn't, uh, he, he was also ahead of his time and couldn't get things advanced because mm-hmm. he was like this sole, mm-hmm. you know, highly progressive voice on the city council of Oakland. Fascinating. Okay. So take us into the point where the 
the two of you are getting politicized or being like pulled into snatched up by movement. Um, <laughs> how would you say that your process, your process of politicization happened? And one of the things that we've been checking in with our siblings about when we do these interviews is about like, is your process of politicization or do you remember it being something that was distinct for each of you? Was it something that happened that you went through together knowing that there's an age, an age gap between you? That's an especially curious question for us. Yeah. So there is, there's a four year age gap. Um, Cole definitely started their journey towards politicization before I started mine. Um, and Cole kind of created the foundations for me to join. So I think, you know, black folks inherently know that shit is fucked up. Right. You know, so, um, I used to be on a block, right. the police would come terrorize us. They would steal <laughs> our weed. They would smoke it in front of us. Like we knew that shit was wrong. Um, and I didn't quite have language to articulate why it was wrong and, and or know the, you know, the, the extent of the s disparities and or the extent, um, at which it was rooted systemically. Um, and so, yeah, Cole, Cole can share, share their piece, but essentially Cole invited me and, and, and my partner at the time into uh, organizing training um, that transformed my life. Oh. <laughs> You're oh. so cute. Um, yeah, I think it's been really fascinating. The journey and to watch each other evolve in different ways um, has been really beautiful. And I think what Carissa spoke to earlier is just this idea of like being raised in very white spaces gave um, both of us, but certainly because I was older, a really clear understanding of racism and how it operates um, at a systemic level, but also as a kid, right? Like I, I was the first black kid to go to my public elementary school and kindergarten. And so they had a school-wide assembly to introduce me to the school. Oh, goodness. And then I got jumped on the bus on the way home, um, which ended up in me being pulled from school, right? Like, so we had these experiences very early on that shaped our understanding of race uh -huh. and race consciousness and all of the challenges with it. But I think it's not until you reach like, your teen years, although that's changing in the Bay, and I think youth organizing in Oakland is really just incredible mm -hmm. for this, right? Which is that you feel very helpless. You recognize the system is fucked up and you you feel like there's not much that you can do. And it's when you get introduced to organizing that it literally transforms your sense of agency, not just in organizing, but in the world, period. You understand that you have a purpose. You understand that right. you've been put here as a force for good. And you also understand, um, you know, as black folks that you have a responsibility to take care of and support and really lift up and be in the service of your mm. people. And so I think that that, for me, a lot of it happened um, in high school. And then I went to Mills uh, in Oakland and it really like threw the doors <laughs> wide open in terms of like, I got to travel internationally for the first time. I got a chance to see that on a national level, there was a need for voices um, like mine and that it was my responsibility to not only bring my own voice there, but to figure out how many other folks I could open the door for and leverage that space for. And so in that way, um, organizing was really beautiful and it blossomed uh, in both of us in really different ways. And it was exciting to be part of Chris's journey in that way. Mm -hmm. um, and I want to ask you now, so, you know, you've done, both of you have done a lot of different things in the world. And 
Um, if you want to share a little bit about your journey from that initial politicization to the work you do now, I'd love to hear it for both of you, like what has moved in that journey. And, and then for where you've landed, what feels aligned and what feels really different about where you are now from each other, right? With each other, from each other. But yeah, like what's been the journey? And then have you landed a place where you're like, yeah, and we're basically doing the same thing in two different locations or we're doing radically different things or? Yeah, yeah, I think it's a little bit of all of that. So um, yeah, the the training that Cole um, introduced me to was C2's training, uh, their community action training. Uh -huh. Uh, so it was a, a weekend training and uh, Cole really was inviting my partner at the time who was formerly incarcerated. And I remember Cole saying, you know, this is one field where uh, folks will look at your record as a as a plus, as you understanding a system that folks are trying to dismantle. And so, like, you're not going to be able to, you know, mm. you, you should take this up as an opportunity to, like, build your skills, get a job. And so he was super shy. He asked me to come. Um, and so I, I went with him. And I remember they had an evening session about their summer program. And at the time, I was a preschool teacher. And so they said, you know, you, it's a full-time position. You have to quit your job. You would get paid $250 a week. And at the time I was making $15 an hour. It was the most money I'd ever made. And I was like, baby, this sounds great for you. Okay. But I'm going to keep my little $15 an hour because I'm getting paid. Um, and by the time that, that, that training, the training was over, uh, by the time the Saturday evening came, I reached out to to Danielle Mahonis and, and Jackie Byers, who were on staff at C two at the time, and said, "Is it too late for me to apply?" Because I'd never been in a space as as Cole named where folk where, where where folks were really thinking about our collective power together. Wow! Um, and so I went directly into uh, paid organizing after that, um, working in San Francisco with Power. Um, and then I did some work outside of uh, paid organizing around the gang injunctions in Oakland um, that kind of bloomed into like um, uh, uh, Occupy Oakland, which we obviously tried to change to decolonize Oakland uh, with massive pushback, which then then transformed into um, uh, building <clears throat> and co-founding the Black Lives Matter chapter. Um, of uh, the Bay Area. And so I was a leader in that space. And and during that time period, I went back to work at C2 as a coordinator, then a trainer, um, and then, you know, eventually became the executive director. Um, I also did a little bit of union organizing in that time. I started the San Francisco Taxi Workers Alliance. So they're affiliate-based. Wow. Um, and the director uh, or the board president of C2 at the time said, uh, I don't think you have enough organizing experience to be training people how to organize. So you need to go build a, a affiliate. And if you can build an affiliate, that tells me you got some skills. So I essentially stopped my work at C2, was still getting paid by C2, and you know went and spent six, seven months building uh, the Taxi Workers Alliance San Francisco chapter. Um, that's still a chapter. Um, yeah, so so over over that time felt pretty rooted in black movement space. Um, you know, even from when we were building in Occupy Oakland, I remember uh 
coming together and saying, we need a people of color caucus. We need space for black folks to talk. Uh, during the uprisings around Oscar Grant, I, I was in an organization uh, called Onyx, which was the only black articulation of folks working towards justice that was, you know, all black. Um, and so, yeah, pr pretty quickly found my home in black movement. Mm. Beautiful. Cole, take us down memory lane. Memory Lane. Um, you know, I think that my journey is kind of encapsulated this idea of um, being in a very faithful place and then losing faith and then rediscovering it again. Um, so I think when you come into organizing or you come into social justice work, you are overly optimistic, right, in terms of not only what is possible, but like that um, this very altruistic, altruistic sense that people um, actually live out the values that they espouse. And I think what was just really hard for me going into the movement work was just realizing, realizing that so many social justice organizations that had like this really profound set of values, like internally, they treated each other like shit. They were broken and nobody was talking about it. At every organization, there was like this critical chronic breakdown and so for a while, I was like very much like, I'm going to be the man of the people. I'm going to like run for office. I was going to be mayor of Oakland. That was like my singular dream was to run for mayor of Oakland. Um, and this vision around community development and what it might look like to build community from a very intentional place. And then I realized that actually white people are not invested in the liberation of black people ever. Like it just does not happen at a collective enough level for it to be useful. And um, two that we are like fundamentally broken, right? Like that there's so much healing work that needs to happen. And so it, it was, I think for a while, really um, disenchanting. I felt really frustrated by the progressive movement in the Bay and really wanting to think about doing and being things differently. And my goal with starting the Brown Boy Project was really to reimagine spaces. And I think it just like, got swept up in like cancel culture and movement culture and like all of these checklists that you do and things you follow and things you don't follow. And um, my ultimately my goal was to create a space of possibility. And so my wife, um, Aisha and I, we are 17 and a half. It'll be 18 years in June that we have been married. Um, wow. Yeah. She's fucking amazing. It's a long love story. It is. It's really fabulous. <laughs> That's a long time. Okay. Um, we, were, we were babies. Uh-huh. Uh -huh. We were babies when we met. Um, but she's from Brooklyn. And so be, her from Brooklyn, me from Oakland, but being born in D.C., it was really this question of like, there's something really transformative about Black cities and Black communities. And despite all of the like broken down infrastructure and lack of resources, like they managed to birth us and we're all like really incredible. And so something around wanting to preserve and protect those spaces and really just being frustrated by gentrification. And so that led us on a quest about six years ago. We looked at seven Black cities around the country from Detroit to Mobile, Alabama, to Vallejo. Um, and we picked Baltimore sight unseen. We had never been to Baltimore and we moved, uh, we moved here about six years ago now. And 
really just fell in love with the possibility in the city. And in the last five years, we um, have worked with 100 Black families to buy in the same neighborhood and community together. We opened a coffee shop. We have an artist residency. We have a farm. We're opening a corner store this year. Um, and we are just on the cusp of launching what will be the first kind of historic public market that is controlled by Black folks in the country. It's about 30,000 square feet. It will reintroduce like a new model for what a community hub and a grocery store should look like. And so I think this question of like our divergence, which is like, I've always, I, I joke, I love Bruce Lee. Bruce Lee is amazing. I wish more people studied Bruce Lee as a philosopher. Same. His entire... Yeah, he's amazing. His martial arts strategy was basically like, take whatever you need from wherever you can find it to fashion yourself together in the most profound way that you can. And so that's very much our approach, which is like thinking about how do we leverage all of the difference, right? There's a reparations movement here around farmland that we are supporting and connected to. And how are we getting folks to donate land? But also how are we at the table acquiring money, resources, and land from the city? And how are we teaching other Black people in other cities to do that? So we live half our year in the States and half our year in South Africa. And basically, wherever we are, we're organizing and supporting Black folks to think about building sovereign solutions that are tied to land. And we're really interested in how much land can we free in perpetuity that that remains in Black hands? And what would it look like for us as Black folks to be the largest landowners of like public collective owned land in this country? And how how can we move toward that space, not only in liberation, but so that we can think about all of the things that we can birth and create. Because when we own the land, then we set it free because no one really should own land. Mm -hmm. Um, But more importantly, we create a space for those that come after us. And really our time on this life, like on this rock is so finite. That's really the question, which is like, how are you using your time to leapfrog our people forward? And so our work is diverged in the sense that Carissa is very much like in the streets, organizing, supporting folks to to basically resist the moment now. And my work is very much focused on a hundred year horizon. And I think that what's beautiful is that as we've evolved and grown, we've realized how important both sides of that work are to the coin in order for us to effectively win. And it's my job to figure out how I can resource and support her. And it's her job to figure out how she can resource and support me because ultimately we need both strategies and many more if we're actually going to be able to get free. Mm-hmm. And, and 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 we see what happens when both of those strategies are not used, exactly. right? Everything from like uh, what 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 it means for folks to to for for the state to demolish sites that we build when we don't keep our foot on the gas in terms of trying to dismantle the current state and the institutions that are harmful. Like we just had the anniversary of the move bombings um, this week. And so, you know, and and we know what it means to not build self-sustaining spaces that allow our folks to reimagine um, how we can be with each other with this land. Um, So yeah, echo, echo. I just wanna say, I really love hearing that because one of the other things that I'm doing and Autumn and I are both obsessed with Octavia E. Butler and we're doing the parable of the sower, parable of the talents. in that, you know, they famously create this land project of acorn, but then famously it is destroyed by the state because they don't have a, that sort of strategic protective arm that is tracking um, what's happening there. And it just feels like between the visions that y'all are 
bringing to pass. It's like you're covering all the ground. You know, you're like, we're going to build mm-hmm. things, but we're also going to be politically engaged in like what it means to transform the conditions in which those things exist. So, ah, yay. I want to, before before we move to our our yes. final question for y'all, mm-hmm. I wanted to ask if you, if you don't mind sharing, um, Cole, you said that you're learning to resource one another. Yeah. And I'm wondering if you could, if you'd be willing to share a little bit about what, what are you learning that each, each of you needs the other person to, to resource each other with? That's yeah, it's really great. I mean, I, I think of it as like, we have to be both preppers. I'm like a black prepper (laughs) in in the spirit of survival. Yes. Um, And we also have to be builders. And so, you know, we haven't always seen eye to eye, like this is a very evolutionary point in our relationship that I'm very grateful for. And there have been periods of time where we didn't speak to each other because we felt we were like, ideologically opposed and just challenge in terms of who we were in that moment um, in our evolutions. And so I think the coming back to each other has been part of that journey. I think um, also losing our dad and really recognizing that each of us as siblings played a really important role in our collective grieving process, not just for us as siblings, but also for our family and for our community was also really beautiful. And I think as the oldest sibling, like it's very hard when you're like, you're the baby. And for a very long time, in my life, you have been like the child that I look after to really be able to see your baby sister as their own being who's come into the world, who's creating and crafting things. And I'm sure I'm not the the last oldest sibling to have to like make room to see the grown version of who she has become. <laughs> but I think that that has been also really beautiful. Um, and it's also been a real joy to be part of what um, really opened the door and brought her into this work. And like Carissa was an organizer, like even when she was back in the day on the block and it came down to like, who are we organizing and we need street teams. Like she's been a natural organizer her whole life. And I think that that um, very much speaks to the work that she does in this moment. So a lot of it has been like, do you, you know, they're like the very fundamental things, which is like, do you know about these folks? this new thing has come across my desk. Have you seen this? Like, how are we sharing information and resources and vetting people and checking things with each other as much as it is checking in on each other, but also really working to um, repair our relationship when it was needed and necessary in order to continue to be in each other's lives, to be a resource to each other. Yeah, and I, I, I know that wasn't a question like where, where was their tension inside of y'all's relationship, but I think... Um, I think Cole named that re- really beautifully that like we had to let go. Like we, we were shitty to each other yeah. when we were younger. I was shitty to Cole. Cole was shitty to me. Like that that's what it means sometimes to be a sibling when you don't have the mechanisms to um, really heal from all of the trauma that you've experienced and you take it out on the post- person you're closest to in it. For many, many years, that was cold for me. Um, And what shifted was um, us recognizing that we weren't those same people anymore. That, you know, the same person who would, you know, I used to be the person who would ask so much of Cole and not give anything in return um, and demand it and and have have, um, entitlement to it. Uh Um, And... (laughs) I, it, it took Cole to be like, 
Oh, so you you didn't just call me to ask me for five hundred dollars? <laughs> oh, you actually are sustaining yourself in very beautiful ways. Like we we had to get to a place where we were able to see each other as adults uh-huh. um, and see that we were in right relationship with our families, um, with with our communities. Um, and so yeah, that 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 has been so rich in terms of. Um, the repair that was necessary for us to show up for each other. Adrian and I are like, oh, <laughs> we're like, mm. <laughs> this is, this is useful and important. <laughs> <laughs> yes, thank you, thank you for being willing to share a little, uh, you know, a little of that part of your story too. I think it those are hard things to expose, right? But it the fact that you're able to talk about them is also evidence of the fact that you've you're you're at a point of clearance around some of that pain um which is really beautiful to see um okay so the last uh question of the interview portion that we wanted to ask you is what do you want the world to know about your sibling um Cole's wife definitely uh gets credit for helping Cole find um, the, the fierce streak inside of them. Um, because I think growing up, Cole was definitely, I mean, maybe our condition tendencies were the same, you know, I'm bold somatics. Um, I'm an appeaser. Um, I think they use a different, I think they use different language for it now, like a something else, but, but Cole was definitely had that energy. And um, so people perceived Cole as like this big fluffy dog, very sweet, very nice. And, um, but, but what Cole has developed is this fierceness um, and protectiveness uh, for people that, that Cole loves. Um, And I, just as an example, when, when our father was dying, I felt so held by Cole, Um, you know, was, it was, it was just very hard because we, it was unexpected. We didn't expect him to die, but then, you know, we had a month where we knew he was dying. And so we got to spend that, that time with him. Um, and it, it was pretty emotional for all of us. And I remember Cole saying, I'm taking Kyla, your daughter, like I'm going to take her with me to Baltimore so you can get some rest, get some break. Um, and just like, yeah, the fierceness that, that Cole loves people, I think is, is really, um, awe-inspiring and beautiful. Also, um, Cole is is a spitting image of our father. Um, you know, he, he <laughs> oh, didn't. He, he, wow. Yeah. They, they both have bald heads. They both dance the same. They have the same mannerisms. Um, and so that's been really beautiful to, to witness as uh, Cole has has stepped into Cole's full identity. Um, and then the last thing that I'll say is Cole is, uh, similar to my father, a really amazing chef. Um, and so Cole, you know, I, I thought that I was going to be the chef in, in the family, um, but Cole beat me to it. And um, uh, uh, so, so when my daddy was dying, we was like, Cole was like, you know, if you want me to incorporate any of the recipes, uh, let me know. And he was like, no, I'm going to, I'm going to kick your recipes up a notch. So you tell me what's on your menu and I'm going to tell you how to make it better. But it, it was just, it was just so epic. So, so, um, I love yeah, Cole's, Cole's an amazing, amazing chef. Um, and, uh, yeah, I can still taste the last Christmas dinner we had together. There was a, there was a lobster bisque 
that uh, changed my okay. life. Wow. Uh, okay. Oh, yes. Yes. Mm. Baltimore. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> Check. <laughs> oh, thanks, Carissa. I appreciate that. Uh, and uh, Ish will be very happy to hear um, that you credit her pretty much with everything because I feel like that woman at this point has raised me. Um, <laughs> so I'm, I'm grateful. Um, grateful for the space and the reflection. I mean, Carissa is a dynamo. I feel like there's very little I can tell people that they don't already know because um, Carissa has this incredibly charismatic energy that like commands the stage. She's been that way since we were little kids. Um, and she is single. She's asked me to reiterate this point. So ah! <laughs> I think she's on pretty the sure she's on Tinder in Atlanta. So <laughs> yes, those of you that just set your set your location to Atlanta, and then you will be able to find her on Tinder. Um, but you know, <laughs> and she's so fine. <laughs> yeah, we're good. Little little kids. Um, we used to do talent shows all the time uh, because when you grow up in like the whitest place on earth, it ain't shit else to do but entertain yourselves with the black music you can find on the radio. And so, so real. <laughs> It was real, real. So, but Carissa was always, always the star of our talent shows. And she was usually either Whitney Houston, right? Like she would come out in her little denim dress with no teeth and sing her little heart out. And I think that that is like such a beautiful metaphor for the way that she like, with complete like abandon, she tenaciously goes after um, the things that she wants. And I think that that has been a really beautiful evolving space because I think for such a long time, um, you couldn't even see the the depth um, of that really incredible energy and spirit. And so she also is really amazing. She also loves on people really, really hard. I think that you create circle and community. You're like uh, an auntie in the making. I think she's been an auntie in the making since she was very, very young. And the idea of like, Everybody gravitates towards her. She knows everybody's business, so be careful there. She'll know all your business soon. Um, <laughs> she, she uses it for good in that she um, is very much uh, a force and offers, willing to offer her wisdom and her insight and her perspective in a way that changes the way that people think, not just about the world, but about the way that they see themselves. And I think that's the most powerful thing you can say about a leader is that they have the ability to transform the way that other people see themselves so that they yes. are more capable in the world. And I think Carissa has that in spades. Wow. Oh my God. I love your love. <laughs> yeah, that's beautiful. Really clear. Mm -hmm. Really clear. Thank you all so much. So this last little segment is one of our faves. <laughs> it's just like how we're getting through. So top culture Top culture can be recent. It can be from long ago and far away. We've had ancient texts that people brought back up, or it could be Ratchet TV or whatever you're loving right now, whatever is getting you through. Um, so does anyone have anything that's like jumps to mind? Like, oh, this is my top culture that I want to make sure people know about that I'm enjoying. I, I'm, there's so many things. I did recently watch every season of survivor there are 40 wow and i am now i am now on a mission to get all of my friends that i think could even remotely stand a chance to apply okay so yeah. i've had six yeah. conversations nobody has all black cast right no no <laughs> nobody has taken the bait yet but i believe 
I believe that it is going to happen, that we will see some of my friends on Survivor. I I know all his hand mannerism. He does the same exact shit, the little host. I know all his hand mannerisms. Yep. I know what he says to get you ready for the challenge. <laughs> uh, I, my favorite challenge is when they, they win and get peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, okay? Because I love me a PB&J. Want to know what you're playing for? Oh, yeah. First try to finish. A little something from home. First tribe to finish, sandwiches plus a jar of peanut butter and jelly. What about you, Cole? Top culture? Top culture, trash TV. Okay, so this is really funny. But um, so I, my wife and I are polyamorous and uh, we date other people, but I'm very bad at long distance dating. I realized during the pandemic, I was like, this is for the birds. I'm, it's not my jam. It's not my jam. It's not my jam. It's not my jam. <laughs> So I started a Finsta, which apparently I also somebody told me this. I did not know that that's what it was, but it's basically like my under um, Instagram and I'm a I'm a dominant in terms of dominance and submission. And so Uh I have this like amazing page that now has like thousands and thousands of followers that has just been this very funny and amazing outlet. And the memes that I get a chance to see on like polyamory and kink and like just all of these intersections and queerness and yes. half of my following is from South Africa and half of them are from the States. And so like what translates uh-huh. in culturally and what doesn't, it's just like joy. It's just hysterical. Today I posted a bunch of memes about like uh, rage and anger and energy and like just transferring those things. And so I think it's been beautiful that one, people have been like, there isn't something like this. It, it, it isn't a conversation that's happening in SA. And so I feel really honored to be part of it. But most importantly, like, I just be cracking myself up. I used to be like, where are you laughing at? And I'm just literally like, yo, these memes and myself. I was like, yo, I'm posting this. This is hysterical. <laughs> I posted one today that was basically like, uh, I will forever choose revenge. I will heal in hell respectfully. And I was <laughs> <laughs> and I was just like, some days you feel oh, like that. That's like that's very accurate and like very real. It's sometimes it's so like that. So can people know your Finsta handle? Yeah, I was about to say, what's the Finsta? I want to know the Finsta. I only know the Finsta. You got to find me. No, it's it's, it's unaffiliated. But if you find me, I will say uh, that your partner follows me. So um, yes, oh, okay, good. So. I know who to yes, find yeah. out. I was okay. like, yes, your partner knows. Your partner follows me. But yeah, you got to find me in these streets. You find out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> in these streets. Yeah. I'll find out. I'll pass it on. This is exciting. All right. So, Autumn, what about you? Top culture. So good. This is hilarious. I really, really identify with um, I'll choose revenge always because um, I'm a Sagittarius. We hold grudges. Um <laughs> So <laughs> we hold grudges. I think um, I have two top cultures. Um, one is Handmaid's Tale. Yes. New, new season, season is happening. I love this show. I have to say I'm an unabashed fan, even though we're like three seasons into it's not even the book anymore. Yeah. And somehow it still is not predictable. Yeah. Um, there was a cliffhanger ending to the episode that I watched last night that really just, it shook me. Um, (laughs) so I love, um, that the, the actress who plays the main character, June, she's just so good at making ugly faces. Elizabeth Moss. She just does this. Yeah. yeah, She's like, does this thing where she 
curls her nose and her mouth and she shakes her head and it's like, ooh, you look so scary. Um, and it really makes you feel something. Um, the other <laughs> the other top culture I have is I just got all love kids. We just for our for our listeners, we are getting a beautiful little um Wife viewing of Cole's wife just dropped in for a kiss. So that was very nice. Oh, we also got a dog viewing. Um, so that was nice too. So my other my other top culture is I just got a copy of this beautiful book called a Handful of Earth, a Handful of Sky. That is like a um um, I'm trying to remember the name of the writer and I can't reach it because my microphone is, is keeping me at the desk, it's but Linnell George. it's basically this Linnell George. Linnell George. So this researcher who has spent, you know, tons of time with Octavia Butler's papers and in her archives, um, is created this book. That's like taking you into Octavia Butler's creative practice yes. and basically guiding you into creative work through the lens that she brought to her creative work. Um, And I just opened up the package and held it in my hands and just felt so just holding it, holding the book in my hands felt like I was, I felt like I was standing in a beam of sunlight is the only way I can really quite describe it. So I just cracked it open a day or two ago and I'm going to really take my time with it. But, you know, anything related to Octavia Butler feels like top culture. Um, but I've been, I had, I had ordered it a while ago and had waited for it because I ordered from my local bookstore. Good for you. So I waited until they had it, you know, so I really, I feel like I was patient with this one and now it's here. It's like by my bed. I love that. I'm culture. so, yeah, it's such a gorgeous, gorgeous book. Mm. And it's like organized around artifacts of hers, like her notebook mm-hmm. and different things like that. So what is it again? That sounds amazing. That. It's called A Handful of Earth, A Handful of Sky. Oh, thank you. Yeah. We'll put it in the show notes too. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually we can put a link. I got to have a conversation with Lanelle George a while ago about it. And we can throw that in there too, because you should, she's so great. She's like this fascinating, gorgeous human being um, that I think y'all would all like. Is she um, single? She so might. We I don't think she's single, but I'll I'll I'll, I'll okay. ask her. I'll, I'll text her and be like, "Look, why you not, know about Carissa? <laughs> what you know about Carissa? Carissa's Instagram, Tinder in the show notes. I feel like oh, we're putting all that in the show notes. Listen, I really believe in um, in like if if love is what you're calling for and lovers are what you're calling for, like let people know. Like people cannot find you mm-hmm. if you do not let people know. And Carissa deserves a lot of that good, good love. And so. Um, Carissa could be our top culture. One of my other top cultures. So I have three things. I just finished an N.K. Jemison book called The City We Became, which was awesome. It's like an ode to New York. And it's very yeah. much like apocalypse, New York, but like the city, a sentient city, basically the city coming alive um, and through embodiment. It's very different from anything else she's ever written. It's the beginning of the Great Cities trilogy. I highly recommend Um and then mm. I just finished The Mandalorian season two. And I'm, Ooh. I, anyone who's like <laughs> Star Wars people or just baby yoga, baby Yoda, or just needs like something adorable and loving and like love based in your life, like somehow it's like Star Wars, but like adorbs. Like it's just the cutest puppy dog 
Star Wars experience of all time. And Baby Yoda, Baby Yoda actually, I don't know if I've ever connected with a character as much as I connect with Baby Yoda. I would like to see the baby. I, I'm like Yoda, grown Yoda. I've always been like, you're a badass. But like I aspire, you know, like in many, many lifetimes from now, maybe I'll get there. But baby Yoda, I'm like, oh, I get you. Like you can wield energy, but you're also like can trip over yourself or like you keep eating things you're not supposed to. Like me and baby Yoda go together. <laughs> um, so highly recommend. And for people who have watched Battlestar Galactica, there are some cameos and some characters that show up in Mandalorian 2 that are thrilling. So just want to say so that. So true. Like literally I blushed and I was like, oh, you're here. Like that kind mm-hmm. of like yeah. just sci-fi standing. <laughs> And then the last thing is trash TV. In this household, we watch Married at First Sight, and we have been watching it. We um, standing ovation. That's so funny. So we just finished like the most recent season, season twelve last night. We were shocked. We were like upset. I was yelling at the television. I was like, "No, girl, no, you do not." And like, I, I'm I'm pretty sure that someone right now is doing something that I'm like, no, I want, like, anyway, there's, there's outcomes that you're like, you're like, but you, everything happens in Married at First Sight. Like it unveils all the things you need to see about like the kind of mistakes people make in dating and love and relationship and all of it. It's oh. all very laid out. So we've gone back, we watched New Orleans, we watched Charlotte. Um, I think we watched DC maybe. So we're just like going back and watching the best of the seasons, but I mean, literally, the show is exactly what it sounds like. These people go through a process with some experts, and then they are matched up. They meet at the altar, getting married, legally married to each other. And then hijinks ensue for eight. Mm -hmm. It's a legal marriage. And it's basically an eight-week experiment where they're sent off on a honeymoon. They return from the honeymoon. They're put in a neutral apartment. They're all in the same apartment building. And then they're living together. The whole thing is like they're being documented. Um, and you just get to see all kinds of mess and magic. It's, <laughs> I, it's true. I also, it's, I also am a huge fan. I have not caught up. I think I'm about two episodes behind, but I'm definitely great. interested in fighting a couple of people from this season for sure. <laughs> <laughs> it's fascinating. Yeah, like I would like. Can, I'm down to process this season with you. <laughs> Can can you put can you put the uh, people's addresses in the show notes? Because I may <laughs> need to, you know, visit a couple of folks if you have them. Oh, there's a particular person in particular who I'm just sort of like, this should not be allowed. I'm upset with the experts for allowing this to go this far. Like it just it's just one of those things. But it was also like I know her. I know this person. Like I know this shape. You just get to see so many shapes. And so I think it's a great show to watch with friends and be like, who are you? Like in, in each season, in each Archetypes. season, you can find yourself, right? Like, you know, I made a joke earlier about how I'm like, oh, you know, I'm not really doing the polyamorous life right now. I'm like very happily monogamous. And like, it's so weird. And one of my best friends was like, except not at all for anybody who knows you because you're like, you know, you're like, you like to be poly when you're single. Like you like to move around when you're single, but like whenever you date people, you're just like, let's lock it in. And you don't even think you're saying let's lock it in, but all your behavior is just so focused. And that shows up on the show that there's like people on the show who show up and they're like, I was a player yesterday, but baby, you're getting today me. Today me is only focused on you. 
And right. Who um, who so, cares anyway. that the last who cares that the last four engagements I was in didn't work? This is new me, new day. Exactly. Okay. <laughs> this is new me. I did some change. Or I mean, my also the I love the yeah. There's a space where it's like there's always someone who's like dating so many people and like literally went on their last date like two days before getting married or whatever. And then there's the people who are like, I haven't let anyone touch me for a decade. I've been working on me, right? And then those two people end up married and they're like, um. Okay. Right. Do you wow. like dogs? Anyway, it's great. So, <laughs> Fascinating. You know, you just get to see the way assumptions play out, projections play out, you know, the way that people put forward a self that's not themselves. And it's like, how quickly can you get past that self? Because whoever you're actually going to be with needs to see whoever you really are. And I just love that part of the show. That's like, you really cannot hide who you really are right. very long in the conditions of, of this cauldron, this marriage cauldron. So wow. I, I think it's fun TV and I'm not caught up on Real Housewives of Atlanta, but I am absolutely paying attention to the tea that is unfolding piping hot this week about Portia and um, <laughs> Simon. So, you know, there's there's so much, there's so much. And I don't feel like I used to be like, I'm wasting my time with this. I'm like, no, this is not good anymore. for me. This is medicinal right. for me. It feels great for me. Nothing else entertain. And I read. I read books. I've redistributed time from social media to trash TV and reading books, and I feel great about it. Mm. Oh, I'm so proud so. of you and happy for you, Adrian. Thank you. You deserve every hour of trash TV that you're getting. Thank you. That's how I feel. Um. All right. So that's it. That's our show. <laughs> that's our show. We're, we love y'all so much for being here with us. Y'all were Chef's Kiss, excellent, excellent guests. Thanks for listening to our show. We're on Twitter and Instagram at End of the World PC. We're also on Facebook at End of the World Show. You can make a sustaining donation to our show by visiting our page at patreon.com slash end of the world show. Another awesome thing you can do to help our show sustain itself is to write us a review on Apple Podcasts if you're an iPhone person or send us an email and tell us that you love us. <laughs> or anything else you want to say. How to, the, How to Survive the End of the World is produced and edited by the skillful and precise Zach Rosen. Music for today's show comes from Tunde Alaniran and Mother Cyborg.